Kafer Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. So nice to see you. Likewise. It's been a, an eventful week, hasn't it, with President Biden talking about privacy and also singling out children. You know, that's one of the things that at the forum with UNICEF and other partners we've been trying to talk about for a long time. And it's lovely to see it on the president's agenda. So obviously um, in his State of the Union uh, speech. That was a welcome highlight of the speech. Uh, there's so much going on right now, but hearing that uh, that is something that he and his administration will be giving thought and attention to was, it was certainly great to hear. Um, and we also have been uh, very busy on, on multiple fronts. I know you have too. We're excited next week. We've been asked to give remarks uh, to the SEC commissioners and chair and larger community. Uh, so I'm really excited that this is something particularly the SEC and all of their purview will be taking on and delving deeper into. And I'm very excited about our conversation today with Jen Ganai. Oh, absolutely. Yes, she's been leading this work for a long time. And I think one of the things about being in Google is that, you know, actually you can make a difference every day you go to work if you do it correctly. So it'd be wonderful to hear her perspectives on how, how she tackles such a huge role. Yeah, I'm very excited for our listeners to be able to hear her work and her insights. She uh, participates in the badge program as one of our panelists and definitely one of the most popular talks we have because so much of this conversation of responsible AI is theoretical. Um, and Jen has been working on this day in, day out in the trenches. And so, so much of her experience and her lessons are based on her actual experience, which obviously is something we can all learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of our listeners can probably find a number of things that they should be doing in their own practices from just listening to Jen sort of almost again and again. So, so yeah, let's dive in to let's, talking to Jen. Let's do it. Today, we are so delighted to be speaking with Jen Ganai, the founder and director of the Responsible Innovation Group at Google. Over the last 15 years, Jen has spent much of her time playing a critical role in the establishment of the ethical framework and tools for Google's trust and safety team. She's held various positions from program manager in strategic operations to head of user research and testing and being founder and head of ethical machine learning. In her current role, leading the Responsible Innovation Group, Jen and her team are responsible for creating and operationalizing Google's AI principles. Her team works with product and engineering, leveraging a multidisciplinary group of experts in ethics, human rights, user research, racial justice, gender equity, and many more to validate the products and outputs and ensure they align with the commitment to fairness, privacy, safety, social benefit, and more. Jen, we are so pleased to have you join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me today. Delighted to be here. Thank you. To start, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your journey in AI? How did you become interested in this space? When did it pivot to responsible AI? And what led you to create the Responsible Innovation Group at Google? So my journey started uh, 15 years ago when I joined Google. My initial role there was on our compliance and risk team. So I spent many years analyzing how our online users were exposed to different risks on our products and how to determine ways to protect them online and from both malicious actors as well as unintended consequences. So I spent about eight to 10 years in our trust and safety organization, which, as the name implies, is intended to keep our users safe online, as well as to build trust in our products. And most of my time there was leading our user research team, which was more of an operational user, user research team, listening to users about their experiences on our products. 
we would send out surveys, we would listen to feedback that we got directly through our products to really understand the areas that were working well for them, but also the areas that were not, and trying to understand how they happened and if we were able to prevent negative experiences online. But in 2013, around 2014, I started seeing that we were getting a lot of feedback related to areas that were more about unintended consequences and less about the malicious actors, that we had fantastic engineering and operational teams working on the malicious actors and preventing negative experiences online. But we were still learning about more emerging gray area of issues where users were experiencing our products differently. And then the spark for me was a research project by Dr. Latanya Sweeney of Harvard, where she conducted analysis on advertising and Google search results and how certain ads were being returned uh, with black related names. So people of African-American names were seeing ads associated to bail bonds and jail. And that was unintended, but had severe consequences on the people affected. So that triggered for me, where else is this happening? Why is this happening? How do we ensure that it never happens again? And that was really my journey of fairness, which came working on ethics and responsible AI more broadly. So the journey really started and became more real in 2014 as I expanded my team's research and testing mandate to focus on these fairness-related concerns in our products and started to work more with teams across the company on understanding how is this happening, where is this happening, and how do we prevent it from happening. Um, and that became the company-wide effort around machine learning fairness around 2016 and 2017. And then in 2017, when Sundar, our CEO, announced that Google would be an AI-first company, uh, we also wanted to ensure that it was a responsible AI-first company. So it allowed us to essentially tie on to this um, company-wide priority around AI that it gave us focus, it gave us a mandate that was company-wide to say, what would responsible AI look like? What could an ethical charter for the company be for the next 10 or so years? And that's really what made the, the journey from fairness to broader ethics more real then in 2017. Thank you for that, Jen. It's really interesting to hear about your journey at Google. And now, of course, you lead the Responsible Innovation Group. So we thought a good place to begin this discussion in earnest would be to ask, what does, the what does responsible innovation and responsible AI mean to you? Why is it important to you? You covered a bit of that earlier. And what are the key ingredients for, your, for you in thinking about your work? Yeah. So the potential for AI for good is massive. And obviously, there's a lot of people trying to understand how to use AI for good. But that just doesn't happen in a vacuum. We have to make sure that it's developed responsibly and meets positive and socially beneficial goals at the end point. So responsible for innovation for us is really that deliberate process of ensuring that things work as intended and in the best way possible. So it's about making deliberate processes, developing smart practices, engaging more voices, diversities of perspective and lived experience in the design, development and deployment of AI. Not just expecting at the end point that once something goes live, that it is going to be positive. So when setting up this team response for innovation, it was tied to our ethical charter, which was launched at the same time, Google's AI principles. So as mentioned in 2017, the ask was, as Google is going to be an AI-first company, how do we be a responsible AI-first company? And really using that language of responsibility, we want to ensure that everyone in the company realized that they play a part in this too. We all have a responsibility to do things right and in a fair, inclusive, ethical way, but we can't do that alone. We have to know what are the tools, the techniques, the best practices, the ways of thinking, and that's where my team comes in. So as responsible innovation, we don't just consider AI as the technology. Innovation is essentially the practice of coming up with ideas, designing the technology, developing it, and working together on producing something that is then deployed. So innovation for us is trying to capture all the steps along the process where AI is just one of the technologies that we use to get there. Uh, people also ask why we didn't call it the ethical AI team or, or the ethics and innovation um, team. 
And again, the responsibility for us was important to show everyone can do this. You don't have to be an ethicist. You don't have to be a trained philosopher to participate. We can all be more responsible day to day. And so that naming was quite deliberate to show that we're not making a judgment call on whether someone is ethical or unethical, whether the work they do is ethical or unethical. We're just saying it can be better. Here's ways of improving and aligning with an ethical charter so that we can all improve along, along the way. It was so helpful to hear your thoughts on how the wording was so powerful um, in framing your lens and in and, and, and articulating your perspective on this. Um, we're also often talking to people about opening their aperture. You know, testing AI is not ever going to be a one and done process. Uh, so I really like the way that you've used innovation to open up that discussion to each part, each step, uh, and ensure that people understand that it's iterative and ongoing, um, as well as uh, the piece that Kay and I often talk about uh, as responsible AI being a important landing place for this discussion. We can have lots of interesting debates about ethics and we should, um, but in the meantime, everyone owes a responsibility to be responsible and certainly those in business. And uh, so it's really helpful to hear your thinking on that, uh, especially because uh, Google, or at least the parent company, as we all know, is one of the largest tech companies in the world. Uh, that is news to absolutely no one on the planet and probably some other planets too, we'll find out at some point. <laughs> so your products are literally touching billions of people and Many, if not most of them, have some form of AI technology embedded, whether it's Google Maps, Cloud, Search, YouTube, Translate. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. Uh, Gmail, thank you for the spam classification as well. So it's hard to overstate the importance of your work in particular. Can you explain to our listeners what Google's AI principles are? How did your team arrive at these principles? Are there some that you left on the cutting table? Uh, and do you think they are all applicable to all companies or are some uniquely applicable and relevant to Google? Hmm. So you touched on it a bit there that there's so many products in Google that use AI. And certainly, although my team are here to support all those products, we don't do it alone. So even in the design of the original AI principles, it was very much a cross-functional, cross-Google effort as we design them. And it was almost a year-long effort of conducting research, conducting interviews with experts, both internally and externally, to understand what are their perspectives and what our principles should be. So the AI principles were intended to be Google's ethical charter for the next 10 years. Uh, I believe Sundar had said that these would be our constitution uh, that we would follow as we develop and deploy AI in the future. So that was the instigator of it back in 2017, was designing this ethical charter for the company. And um, so that, that process, uh, as I said, was cross-functional in nature. Um, my role coming from the trust and safety organization at that time and lead of the user research team was to conduct some of that initial research on what are users already asking for? What are the issues they already have concerns about that they want us addressing? But also expanding that um, uh, list to folks like uh, policymakers, to academia, to understanding what organizations are already developing their own principles. But the latter, we wanted to also be careful that we weren't going to fall into groupthink. We didn't just want to copy other people's principles. So I tried very hard to ensure we were listening to users first, looking at the company's existing values uh, and philosophy to ensure that this would fit with Google's uh, existing work, and then expanding it to these other stakeholders, but trying to be as inclusive as possible as we design them. So really start as a research project first, then a series of conversations internally and externally with experts in the technologies, but also experts in social sciences and community leaders, nonprofits and other people who've been thinking about the impacts of technologies on various communities, not just the people developing the, the technologies. So about a year after uh, keeping up this group, we were close to coming up with the list of AI principles. And as you alluded to, there are some that were on the original list that didn't necessarily make it into the final list and some shuffling at the end that added uh, AI principles. So currently, uh, Google's AI principles are seven aspirational principles and four guardrails or applications we will not pursue. So the seven are things like 
Uh, do not create or reinforce bias, ensure accountability to people, ensure that we're following privacy protocols and principles. And many of them are traditional. We've seen them reflected in other companies' uh, principles in other global organizations, WEF, uh, OECD, and otherwise, that we are following, following some common principles around transparency and fairness um, and supportive of these uh, global perspectives of what we think are best in, in the best interests of users and consumers. But where we were a little bit different were these applications we were not pursue. We're not just assigning what we want to do, we're also saying what we will not do. So these four applications we will not pursue specifically identify, we will not develop weapons technology, we will not conduct surveillance violating international norms, uh, we will not violate um, international human rights or cause overall harm. So that's a little bit different from Google uh, with other lists that we've seen. Certainly could be applied to other uh, companies, but we also understand that um, it has to align with your own company's values. So we want some alignment. I think we all should agree that there's some goals like fairness, equity, justice that we're all aligning to, but then different companies make different decisions on what they won't do. And we just want to be very transparent um, about that. Uh, in terms of a couple of things that did not make it into the final list uh, to your question, it was really more about bucketing uh, to allow essentially future proofing of these AI principles. We didn't want to just uh, design principles that made sense in 2017 and 2018. We wanted to ensure, obviously, that we were thinking ahead. So some of that lent itself to the language we use, which is quite broad, and that's why implementation is very important. It's about interpreting and implementing the principles. So but the wording allowed us to think about the future. So things that could have become standalone principles, like thinking about uh, the future of work and the implications of future of work. We've essentially more embedded them into thinking about we won't cause overall harm. We'll think about overall social benefits. So we have these two other principles that try and capture some of these very specific topics or themes that we didn't want to have a laundry list of issues. We want to ensure that they are encompassed by more of these future-proof principles. So less about dropping things off because they weren't important, more about integrating them into existing principles and making sure those principles could become essentially larger tents for more and more issues as they emerge. And it's very interesting to hear the depth of the work that you had to do to ensure that the work that you are doing now and um, will be doing in the future is, as you say, future-proofed and tested as you go along. And so I wanted to talk to you about the size. We've talked about all the things that um, you're doing and the fact that obviously you have lots colleagues working on this, but um, it obviously creates challenges being such a huge company in ensuring uniform awareness, let alone adherence to the principles. Are certain principles harder to achieve than others? And are there some you would suggest that are more important across the board that every company using AI should adopt, no matter what your industry or size, because I think that is, you know, when people are listening to these podcasts, listening to great work that people like yourself have done, it is that question that they're often asking themselves around responsible AI. So uh, I'm hesitating on the, the question about are some harder to achieve than others? These are all very complex, hard questions to answer. Many of them are things we haven't been able to answer offline in the real world uh, since humans have existed around things like bias, all historical biases, we're all biased in different ways. So how could technology ever try and pretend to solve fairness? So what we try and work with our product teams and even what I hold my team accountable to is more thinking about being more fair and getting everything fairer than it had been before and in validated, improved ways. I can't pretend when I talk to a product team that I can make their product 100% fair. That's unfair to them. That's unfair to me and my team to hold them to a standard that no one has been able to address externally. So we have to be conscious um, of things uh, like that. So uh, certainly uh, many of them are very tough uh, problems. 
So, but we're, I would probably say more that the research is further along in some areas than others. So it's not that objectively some of the principles are easier or harder than the others. It's just that there's been more attention and work so far in certain areas. So an example of that is we have had a lot of research in this area of fairness. We know a lot of other companies are working on it. And it is one of those ones to your question of which ones should everyone be working on. Everyone should be working to make their products more inclusive, leading to more equitable outcomes. Um, and so that is a common one. And I think it's one that we can all do better in while acknowledging that we, won't, we don't have all the answers. We're not perfect. We're not going to get there, but we have to invest to get better as we go. So whether it's working on reducing uh, unfairness in the end products by working with more diverse uh, people with more diverse lived experiences, but up the chain to how do we ensure fairer models? How are we looking at more representative data sets? And how are we also ensuring that people in the room at the very start designing and developing these products are also more representative and inclusive of the perspective of a more global user and base? So it's all these steps along the way certainly can imply difficulty, but there it's more about complexity and, and trying to acknowledge that and still um, uh, move forward on that. So fairness is definitely one of those shared ones that is having a lot of research, but still has a lot of open questions there as well. Other areas of our principles that also are a bit further along in terms of um, community research, both externally in academia, organizations and companies, are areas like privacy and, and safety and security of AI. Privacy obviously had gotten more investment when more regulations came in. So that has a lot further um, uh, conceptual as well as practical uh, implementations in our AI. Similar with safety and security, a huge industry around ensuring AI is safe, that it's secure, because it's building on existing technologies. AI can help even existing technologies be more safe and secure with that advancement. So again, it's more about where some of these principles are further along from a research while other ones may be still emerging. And for us, we've encompassed that in our principles, for example, around accountable to people, that other companies or organizations um, um, define that more as transparency of AI, accountability of AI, maybe the ability for recourse or appeal, while we book it in under that quite large bucket of accountable to people. That one is quite hard because we know that uh, regulation is coming in this space, but there's not a lot of definition around what that means. And for someone coming from the user trust background, transparency is a means to an end. Why do we want transparency? Who is it going to help? Is it actually going to achieve the goals that we want, which is to ensure uh, that technology works in favor of users and society? So transparency for us, we're still researching is for what purpose and how do we achieve that purpose in a way that's actually useful? From understanding users and even myself, I don't need to see the whole algorithm. That's probably going to um, that scare me away more than just knowing like this product is working the way it's intended and the way you know that to be true is because these like criteria were met. So that one for, for me is both a common one for many companies, but is one that is still emerging of what do we mean by that? What do we mean by transparency and accountability and how do we achieve that in the best possible way? Well, thank you for illuminating for us some of the thought of the uh, deep work that goes into framing and articulating the principles. Um, but what's interesting, as we all know, is that devising the principles and the framework is important and, and challenging as that is to articulate in a way, as you say, that will be meaningful 10 years out. But it's just the first step in a very long path towards creating responsible AI and arguably even more challenging is operationalizing these principles. I know this is something you give a lot of time and thought and energy to. We'd love to hear more about your work in operationalizing these principles. How have you approached it? Uh, has it made you rethink any of the principles and, and what they actually mean in practice? And what guidance would you give others who are in different stages of this journey? Yeah. So uh, Sundar himself said when we launched the AI principles back in 2018 that 
principles on paper that remain on paper are useless. It really is about that interpretation and application. So that's what my team and, and teams across the company have been working on is putting those AI principles into practice. So that's our buzzy way of saying we're putting them into practice, we're operationalizing um, every day. So some of the key ways that we think about it and where we started was some basic pillars that we don't believe this is just a technical issue to be addressed. It is also a cultural and an organizational one. So for our team, we um, uh, focus on three main areas. The first one is around culture change in education. We started very early immediately with the launch of the AI principles with education efforts, not just education of what do the AI principles mean and how to think about them, but also offering technology ethics trainings and working with the Marcula Center on some of their existing learnings and how that could be adopted to a company of both our scale and our complexity. So that first bucket is really about equipping and empowering people day to day to be more aware of both the AI principles, but also the underlying ethical foundations of how do you build ethical critical thinking skills? Again, we're not trying to make everybody uh, ethicist, not trying to train everybody to be a philosopher, but so many of the experts in Google are very technology based. We want to expand that skill set and critical thinking skills to get more of these ethical uh, considerations built in from the start. So that first book was very much education, awareness, and making people feel bought in. We don't want to be the ethics police telling people where they're going wrong. We want them to feel, again, back to the notion of responsibility and responsive innovation, that they feel they have a role to play and that it's accessible and easy day to day. That was our first way of trying to operationalize it, is bringing the company together, making sure that they are aware of that. That effort continues. Obviously, we're hiring new people all the time. People expect more levels of detail. That level of detail differs whether you're a product manager, a salesperson, a developer. So we continue to iterate on those educational efforts and providing both in-person trainings as well as self-service and online ones to ensure that we're meeting people where they are, as well as getting a more global coverage. So that was the first book around equipping and empowering more cultural change and organizational change. The second bucket is what we roughly, it's gone through different iterations of names, but, uh, but the knowledge base. How are we sharing smart practices, learnings, case studies uh, with people across the company? So moving from awareness to application and adoption of the AI principles. So developing with our uh, uh, research colleagues, the tools and techniques that developers need to adopt day to day but at the same time providing case studies to product managers and executives so they understand how to think about this day to day, but also how to build in accountability to their annual goals, to their performance management. So really helping make this real on the day to day level. So our knowledge base is informed by deep research, informed by our ethicists, our human rights experts and others to package that in a way that's accessible for people to use day to day. And then what informs both of those is for my team, our core operations. What we mean by our core operations are the reviews. That's the accountability governance mechanism of before a product goes live, we assess it for alignment with the AI principles. Again, we're trying to make this a collaborative process. We, won't, we don't want people to feel scared of engaging with our team, but it is a way to assess against each of our 11 AI principles if a product could be improved. And through those assessments, we assess for essentially the best possible use cases to see how socially beneficial a product is, but also the worst possible use cases and any unintended or malicious things that could happen with this technology. So we do try and map out these, but also assessing it from a scale, severity, and likelihood perspective. We don't just assume they're all equally true. We try and amplify the social beneficial goals of the product team and make sure that they get to achieve those positive goals while mitigating, preventing uh, outright some of the negative effects. So the scale of the issue is how many people may be affected, but the numbers are not uh, always as important of how severe some of those effects could be and whether certain communities are more likely to be affected by others. So trying to be more conscious of paradynamics. And then likelihood. Have we seen this happen before? Is it likely to happen? Is it technologically feasible that it would happen? So we try and assess that in order to work with the team on, on improvements there. And so the decisions in that type of review process are we approve it, we approve the conditions or changes that a product team would make, 
or we pause or decline. If we feel like we just can't get to meeting our AI principles goals, then we have to pause or decline uh, on that. So that third bucket of what for our team as those core kind of checkpoints before a launch is what feeds into that knowledge base. So we build case studies so other people can learn what works well, what areas do I need to avoid, what are common failure modes that could happen in my product. We try and share that with teams so they can um, make any adjustments as early as possible in the product development lifecycle instead of waiting until the pre-launch stage when it's more costly, more difficult to make those changes that may be uh, required. Yeah, and it's so nice to hear you talking about, you know, think the balances that you have to do and, and balancing the level of severity and particularly um, which communities would be affected. We at the forum have done a lot of work thinking about AI and children, and I noticed that President Biden mentioned them as a particular category in his State of the Union. Um, speech yesterday. And so I'm thinking about, you know, sometimes it's it's possible to do something, but um, responsible AI means that perhaps just because something can be done technologically, technologically, it shouldn't be done. And so my question is, you know, are there AI applications where you've decided to stop exploration or use them that you could share with us? It sounds as if there were. Mm -hmm. um, so there there have been, and I'll, I'll share a couple now in a moment, but I also get the kind of tie-in question to this, um, which is how many have you said no to, and, and do you expect that to increase over time as your team kind of continues to mature and cover more products? And my honest response is no. If we're saying no to products, it essentially means me and my team haven't done our job earlier in the process. To my point that we had a couple of buckets around educating and empowering uh, people across the company, making sure they're aware of what they could be doing, that by the time it gets to a no, it means my team didn't support teams along the way. We didn't help them understand the unintended consequences of their technology or, or otherwise. So certainly we have said no and we likely will say no um, for things in the future, but I'm really trying to not say that. I want to get earlier in the process, help people, as I say, identify those harms, understand the potential consequences of their technologies very early on, build in the responsible AI tools from our partners in the research organization and other technical teams in the company to make sure that they're building them in from the start so we can say, okay, you actually did that and now you're good to go. We validated, we still stress tested, it's still important to have those checks and balances, but we're hoping to not say no. So that's my, uh, like just run into then, yes, we have said no. And um, one of the uh, kind of biggest and most consequential decisions was one of our earliest around facial recognition. That back in 2017, 2018, um, our, our cloud business had been receiving requests that facial recognition was the most, one of the most requested um, functionalities that our partners uh, wanted. So cloud was already, uh, wrestling with the idea of how or if to make this uh, available. At the same time, we we're obviously designing um, the AI principles and we were already working on ML fairness efforts. So those three things confluenced around the time of um, 2017, early 2018, where we were saying this technology could be hugely useful in many number of positive use cases, but it also is hugely concerning in many other cases whether in the criminal justice system or could be used to over surveil certain uh, uh, marginalized, existing marginalized communities, we don't want to exacerbate that. So it raised a lot of interesting questions. And to your, to your point about there's both pros and cons and we have to balance it. I remember one of the most difficult conversations I had was uh, with an organization working on child safety, which you also mentioned, that facial recognition could be used to identify children who have been trafficked. And obviously, we would want to support that. But if we made it available to law enforcement in certain situations to save children, how could it also be misused against certain populations um, in the US? Obviously, we'd be most concerned about the African-American population and how it could be misused there. So we have to wrestle with which communities. And we want to obviously improve for all, but that's not realistic with certain technologies, especially as they're emerging. So for us as a company, the decision we made was, no, we would not make a general purpose facial recognition technology available in ways that it could be used 
by anyone for anyone because we felt that there were too many unanswered questions around fairness, the ethics of this, what use cases it would be used for or not. That was one of the biggest no's, a pause on any general purpose facial recognition. But at the same time, we continued more constrained use cases of when could facial recognition be used and where can we control it to agree that we can learn about where it's useful or not? How do we learn to improve um, uh, the fairness of these types of applications? And so just recently we had announced that uh, the amazing work of our product teams on the Pixel camera, that they've worked so hard to ensure that the Pixel camera works as well for skin tones across the spectrum instead of just predominantly working well for white or lighter skins. So that type of work is what we want to continue research, but in a constrained, careful way, so we can answer some of these big questions that have led us to say no on technologies more broadly. So that's kind of one of the biggest ones that we made, essentially leaving that billions of dollars on the table to ensure that we're able to answer these questions because they're big ones and they do have societal um, impact. Another one that's emerging, and I'll, I'll share here less as kind of the company perspective and more where my team have been spending a lot of research time, is around the area of emotion detection. Again, there's a lot of excitement around how emotion detection could help uh, in certain situations, but also raises concerns around, is this pseudoscience? Can you even detect emotions versus you are responding to physiological signals? So is this kind of a real science? And we have one of our principles, uh, which is around scientific excellence, that we want to ensure that we're supporting essentially good science and we're advancing good science, but also questioning if we feel like, wait, there's a lot of open questions around whether we could even uh, do that. So motion detection raises these questions around scientific excellence, also raises questions around fairness and cultural inclusion. Do facial expressions, do emotion mean the same things in different parts of the world? Are facial, rec uh, uh, facial um, uh, recognition going to work in the same way for even different um, uh, self-identified genders or races or otherwise? They're perceived differently and um, by humans, which goes back to our notion of historical biases and we're all biased, that the same facial expression is perceived differently depending on who you are and what you look like. We don't want to embed those historical biases into the technology. So for us, emotion detection raises a lot of these types of questions that we feel we need to answer a bit further before we would make essentially more product decisions. There's a lot of research in this space and that research should continue to help us advance and understand these uh, applications. So um, we've said no to a couple of things that would have essentially said we've answered all those questions. And really that no is more pause to say, we need to do a lot of work here. Um, and then we'll make a decision further down the road. And I, I know that that can land uh, differently with different audiences and maybe your listeners as well, that uh, you either have to make a, a single final decision or it's not a real decision. And I would definitely disagree with that. The advancement of science requires us to try and understand these problems a bit better and then make decisions as we go along. So for us, it's a pause in that one, while with facial recognition, it was a no for general purpose and a yes for constrained use cases to help us answer those questions. Well, thank you for these illustrations of the kinds of questions and challenges you wrestle with uh, on a daily basis. I mean, I'm sure that which is one small lens into the huge uh, window of, of uh, really fascinating, interesting, challenging questions and decisions you're making day in, day out. Uh, if we could continue the thread a little bit further on lessons learned, it strikes me that you've been working in the responsible ethical AI space longer than since most people, well before most people even knew that it was a thing, <laughs> uh, other than Kay, who started working in this field about the same time. Uh, so obviously, there's so much we can learn from what you've seen and learned along the way. Uh, I was curious what you would say have been some of the challenges or mistakes you have encountered or witnessed, and the, how those benefit your work, uh, and how we could all benefit from understanding those lessons. Um. Great question, obviously a tough question. We're all humans and no one likes admitting mistakes, but this work is also like done by people and humans. I think people can assume that this is what faceless companies do. And if that, if you make a mistake, then that was an intentional one. 
while we've certainly made mistakes and they are not intentional, they were either gaps or um, uh, insufficient research in particular areas, which is why we continue to do um, a lot of research. A couple of the personal um, um, mistakes certainly that I've made, as I, I said of this, uh, one is around inclusive language. Um, I mentioned that part of our AI principles, we have these four applications we will not pursue. Um, I defaulted to using a shorthand for them when we first launched them, which was these are our four red lines. And, and through my work, I realized that our language is very important and red lines have negative connotations and historical connotations of what it means, which is exclusionary to African-Americans from a housing and credit perspective. Um, and that was eye-opening to me. I should have known that, especially the work that I'm in. I did not, and it was ignorant, and it offended people as I was trying to build this thing that was intended to be positive. It was not landing with people because of the language that I was using. So I was... And that's just a very specific example. It made me and my team more aware of inclusive language. And some of the amazing people on my team conducted a much deeper research on uh, inclusive language more broadly and have worked with people externally as well as technologists internal to our company to update the language that we use in our um, developers and, and engineering um, code bases as well as more broadly of how we discuss it. So that's not like a personal thing. So uh, for, for your listeners, it would be more just the consciousness of language. The, the language that you use is important um, and just be more conscious of that. So even though we're all working towards the same goal, it's about how you um, uh, frame it. Uh, other areas that we've also learned are really around the inclusion and diversity perspective. But again, we have um, tried to build inclusive teams. And again, a learning for me and, and other managers is we build diverse teams. We work very closely with our HR departments to ensure that we are um, expanding the pool of candidates to join the company, uh, which is necessary, but it's insufficient. You also have to make sure that once people are in the company, that they feel included, that they feel that they belong, that they feel that their uh, um, uh, opinions matter and that they're valued. And that they are, that their opinions inform our strategy, their opinions inform our decision making, that these aren't made by single people or single people who look the same, but they're actually brought in. So although we were very conscious of it from a team level of the hiring stage, we also have to be more conscious over time about the development and uh, leadership opportunities of the people on the team. We also learned that Trying to solve it within a team is also insufficient. We established many programs now over the years that both um, uh, deliberately seek more diverse perspectives within the company, even if they're not working on fairness or ethics full time, as well as externally. We've established more partnerships with nonprofit groups and community groups and academia to ensure that we're remaining humble, that we don't have all the answers we certainly don't have all the answers when we mostly sit in Silicon Valley. We have to be aware that we have a, even I'm not um, American, I am US based, but I do have, a, I came from a Western culture and I, I do have that same perspective. So we have to look beyond nationalities or different kind of global inclusion to cultural inclusion. So we've also learned over time to be more deliberate about that. And I think any company or any of your listeners can also learn from that is making sure that you're checking who's in the room, what are the lived experiences we're bringing there, but also it's never sufficient. <laughs> Whatever you do, it's never enough, but you have to keep trying and you have to figure out other ways of filling those gaps. So whether it's more global research, more global user feedback, or as I say, even if they're not full-time on your team, more global perspectives are brought in either through working groups or sessions like this where you're able to host people of different perspectives to share their knowledge more broadly. So more speakers uh, from the global south, more um, local presence in, in different areas um, as well. So that's kind of another uh, big learning. And the third one is um, one of the challenges and mistakes is expecting that just doing the hard work is enough. I'm not talking about it. I'm not a PR person. I've never like worked in either branding, marketing or anything related. And I just hope that by doing this good work in the company that it would have an impact both internally and externally. And we've seen that that's not true. We're obviously under an intense amount of scrutiny and whether it's policymakers, media, academia or otherwise, we do need to share more information proactively of trying to say this is a rhythm of communications. These are the things we're trying we don't have all the answers, but here's what we've learned and here's what we've updated. 
So we've also tried to ensure that from our ecosystem, not just my team, but everyone working on this, we have a six monthly rhythm of a blog post, mostly um, uh, uh, bylined by Kent Walker, our overall exec uh, lead here in global affairs, as well as Marion Throat, the new lead of our uh, research uh, responsible AI center. So trying to get that rhythm of comms, we've definitely um, found that we should have been more transparent about what we're trying, but this is hard work, but we're doing it anyway, essentially. And there are certainly kind of three big buckets of the learnings I've most been exposed to and mistakes we've made. And thanks so much for sharing those. I, I mean, I imagine that our listeners will be absolutely riveted because almost every sentence contains something that we should be learning from you. Of course, you know, you're in such an interesting space, leading responsible innovation at one of the best known innovators in the world. Your world, your work involves ethics, accountability, discussions that would be challenging in any company let alone one whose CEO has been interrogated before Congress on multiple occasions on this subject. This even emerges in related headlines in the most recent conflict in Ukraine in terms of the ethics of how your product should or should not be available for use. I would imagine that you have a unique perspective. In fact, I'm sure you have a unique perspective. There is the Google in the news and the Google of your work experience. What are aspects of your work that you wish others knew about? So um, I think the external scrutiny that you uh, allude to, it's, it is necessary for a company of our size and, and the impact that we have on, on our users that, that trust us to provide products that work for, for them. So we should be humble and make sure that we are accountable to the expectations of many different um, stakeholders um, externally. So, and again, that's also leading into my background as a user researcher of the necessity of listening to people, to especially the people most directly affected by our technology. So for me, I like constantly listen to say, what could we be doing differently? And where should we kind of check ourselves and make some changes as well? But there is a lot that is not known uh, externally, and especially because I'm biased as a people manager here too of an amazing team that the people on my team are amazing and they work so hard every day. They get up and I've alluded to the complexity of the problems that they're addressing. They have to get up and know, I'm not going to be able to solve this problem today or tomorrow or even in the short term future. But they still have to get up every day to figure out how do I make it better? And how do I ensure that this product works better for at least another group than it did yesterday, or ensuring that this product team feels supported to get to better outcomes than maybe the challenges of a, of a launch or otherwise is, is imposing on them. So our team has to not just navigate that external scrutiny, but also internally making sure that we are supported in that equipping and empowering way that we want to product teams. So really the part that I think is hidden is the, is the kind of human side of it, that we do have experts in human rights, civil rights, user experience research, uh, sustainability, all on this team trying to ensure that these products work well for everyone. Um, and these are hard problems. So they can also feel frustrated that, yeah, okay, we made mistakes, we're going to make another mistake, and we have to keep trying anyway. Um, so that might be too naive to kind of humanize it. I'm definitely speaking more as a people manager, someone who does this every day, more than for Google and, and for the big company. But Google is made up of all these people who are trying to align their values with the products to make these products inclusive of everybody um, and more ethical. So I guess the humanization. But I also expect your listeners to question that and say, wait, no, like <laughs> we can still disagree with a company strategy and narrative while acknowledging there may be people behind it. But that that is the key one. People work hard every day, and it's, it, uh, it, it is a scrutiny that we should be under, but that it's different when you feel it on the ground. And you know, again, as a people manager, how hard my team works, how hard these problems are. We're going to keep doing it, so keep providing that scrutiny and, and feedback. But I think there's a lot unrecognized about how hard these problems are and how hard we continue to work. So keep the scrutiny up, but we're going to keep, keep moving in the best way that we can. It's so interesting. You know, we're always talking about remembering that AI impacts humans. Uh, and you're reminding us that 
the humans involved can also be impacted and, and thinking about your connection to those who work with you and, and who are doing the hard work of trying to keep it ethical, responsible, fair. Uh, so thank you for sharing that insight with us and, and giving us more to think about in terms of the human side of AI. Um, you've been so helpful in, in helping us delve deeper and, and further into the details of your work and the challenging questions that you take on, as well as sharing some of the lessons learned uh, in your experience. Um, I was hoping you could share with us uh, the broader perspective of what you're excited about. What are some of the developments that you've been working on, that you've been seeing on the AI horizon uh, that you think we should be looking forward to or that just you yourself are looking forward to? Yeah, so I'm definitely excited about this and sometimes I can definitely come across both internally and externally as the, the Debbie Downer, the person who's trying to stop these things from happening. And really I'm not, it's about amplifying social benefit ensuring that when products launch that they do have just the best impact so this this i like this question because it allows me to say no 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 i am excited about ai there are amazing things that are happening so the three areas that generally come to my mind and um uh they're kind of maybe varying degrees of how your listeners consider their kind of impact and um inspiration but one uh, is around sustainability and energy in the environment that this is a critical human-centered issue that affects all of us. And I'm excited that AI may be able to tackle these problems that we've never been able to tackle at a global scale to such a degree before. So AI may allow us to address human, global, societal problems that we've never been able to do before. That's exciting. And we have to address things like global climate change, that in general, we obviously know that there's a lot of concern, uh, uh, there's a lot of action around, but we've also heard that globally and at national policy levels, there's not enough been done, that we're not investing enough in actually addressing and mitigating the challenges that will happen. Science says it will happen and it's happening much faster than we expected. AI is going to be required to help us move forward, especially with the lack of global policy response to what is needed at this stage. So um, so that kind of sustainability and environment, I'm excited and if necessary, that AI will play a big role there. Related to that is around health and life sciences. Again, these are global issues, human-centered issues that AI has already been proven to help uh, diagnose, identify, and improve um, uh, uh, diagnostics for health-related issues. This could extend human life. It could reduce um, unnecessary deaths over time, but I'm excited about what we can do in the health and life sciences space. Obviously, again, biased from the responsible AI perspective, expectations in that area in terms of responsibility, ethics, fairness, privacy are so much greater in the health and uh, life sciences space as they should be. But I'm excited that AI, knowing those and building in responsible AI best practices can do amazing things in the health and life sciences space. And then the third area, and this is where I say that maybe people would uh, think that I'm jumping between kind of scope of these things, but I really am excited about what AI can do for small and medium businesses especially as we think about the world emerging from a global pandemic and the effect that that's had on economies of helping the mom and pop stores and local businesses to do their work and be successful. AI might be able to help them do it faster, cheaper, uh, in a more expansive way than we've been able to do before. That again, maybe more local to some people, but when we do it on a global scale, I think it would be fantastic for the economy, those business owners, and then for all of us as consumers, as we hear all these scary news about inflation and otherwise. So excited about the AI commercial potential, especially at that small and medium business level. Super, thank you very much for those three um, ways that you see AI helping. Um, but in amongst that quest, Radon, so you um, talked about regulation and the fact there is nothing global out there. And yet you are working for a global company and um, I wondered how, in your experience, the international demands of different legal regimes affect your team's approach to the issue of responsible AI. And as a follow-up, whether there are aspects you prefer in regulation or proposed regulation from certain countries on AI, 
and whether you believe that we actually can or should develop international standards on the use of AI. Yeah. A lot in that question, and this is where I'd have to say my my expert, smarter colleagues in our public policy legal team would probably have a better answer for you. But from my perspective, the question about international um, uh, regulations and our role as an international company, that we uh, obviously follow local uh, regulation and, and, uh, in every country. And where I see our role as responsible AI and Google's philosophy and values is doing more than that. Like responsible AI, a lot of our ethical work is not required either yet or may not be at all. We're doing it anyway because it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't mean we have all the answers. And that's where regulation could be helpful, which is what are our global definitions of things like fairness? It's one of these questions we keep asking ourselves. We still have to make decisions on is our product more fair, but the definitions of fairness differ by product, by region, uh, by the type of uh, product use case that you're using. So more guidance on what do we mean by these at a global level would be helpful. We're coming up with our definition because we see it from our global users, from our global presence, but we can't pretend again that that's perfect, that it's right for everyone. So more direction on a global stage would be helpful because it would then become this balkanization of fairness means this thing in this country and, and something elsewhere as regulation currently is, but we have a chance to set global standards around these more ethical, responsible notions and be helpful to do that at a more uh, international uh, level. That also touches on the question of like what, what policies or regulations we would also need is there's a lot of existing um, uh, technical related regulations that could be modified for AI. AI is just the technology and the approach. Um, essentially, it's math. So why are we regulating this part of math versus the use cases? Regardless of whether you're using AI or otherwise, if it is a negative uh, product experience, if it will cause unintended consequences, we should tackle the unintended consequences of the use case instead of how that use case came about. So I do think that there's an opportunity from regulation policy perspective to focus on the use cases instead of how those use cases come about. Because again, maybe new technology will be developed and because it's not called AI, it's now excluded from that negative use case. That doesn't seem to make sense and wouldn't seem to protect users, consumers and society um, more broadly. Related to that and what may inform the use cases is a more deliberate risk-based approach. Not all technologies created equal, not all potential technologies have equal levels of potential impact on individuals or society more broadly. So taking more deliberate risk-based approach, but again, back to the definitions, being clearer about what is higher risk versus lower risk, how do you define them, and then how do you act on them? It's not just that this is high risk, therefore, like be more conscious of it. What does that mean? It means that you have to take, again, responsible steps. It may not mean you can prove you come to the right outcome, but you've done all the right things to then come up with an outcome uh, that is in the best interest of the users. So again, I'm biased that responsibilities are about trusted processes, not about always knowing your outcome is going to be correct. You should validate it. And we also do our own internal audits and testings on it. But you have to have those trusted processes. So more definitions um, around that. Um, so I think I touched on the questions around internationalization. Yes, support it versus uh, at, a, at a more regional level um, and some of the suggestions around regulation that, yes, it's needed in some regards, but also more consistency and more clarity on that on a use, base, use case basis, less on the technology itself. Well, I hate to bring this conversation to a close because we are hearing so much interesting insight from you and your experience, and I uh, would love to keep on going. But uh, given the reality that we cannot, I would like to take us out of reality and say that you now have a magic wand. Uh, so if you were to have this magic wand and could make one wish to help the world achieve responsible artificial intelligence, what would you use that wish for? Uh, I'm afraid you and your listeners will hate my response because it's so human-centered. But my wish is more on the human side around awareness and action. I think people are putting too much on the AI technology that will click our fingers and AI will be responsible and ethical and fair. 
we built it. Humans built that AI. We designed it, we developed it, we deployed it, we chose when and how it would be used. So I feel a magic wand that would be more scalable, more future-proof is humans be more empathetic, aware, and then take action based on that empathy and awareness of recognizing this product isn't just for me. I'm designing something that will affect someone else's life. How will it affect their life? I'm building something that's based on historical uh, biases. I need to fix that and be aware of it. And then even when we launch these types of products, like we're saying around regulation and scrutiny, people will also be aware and empathetic of how is this affecting individuals? Not what do we have to do to get regulation there. It's what will affect a user, what will affect society, and what's my role there? So that, my magic wish is for the human change, not the AI. I think we are putting too much on the AI. It did not come up with its own design and decisions itself. Humans were involved. So I think if humans are more aware and they take action on that awareness, we'd be in a much better spot. And I'm not saying that against all the amazing technologists who are working on it. We're all biased. But how I've learned and what I think other people can learn too is to identify our biases, be more aware of it, and then act on that. That I can't change who I am. I can change what I'm aware of and what like actions I take beyond that. So again, I'll acknowledge this is probably not the wanted question, but my wish is human change and empathy uh, less on the technology side. Well, we really can't argue with that. It's I think a constant refrain we're getting back to. It's interesting. The more we're delving into automation, the more it's coming back to humans and the basic principles, once again, that we should have hopefully learned in kindergarten, basic empathy and care for our neighbor. So thank you for bringing us back to first principles. Thank you so much, Jen, for your time and insights. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Fantastic conversation. Well, Kay, as we thought, that was so much content, so many insights Jen shared with us today. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Oh, it's difficult to know where to start because I do think that for me, uh, the way she talked about global regulation and how you know we should think about use cases, not just the math. Um, they're regulating a use of AI in human resources, for example, which is something we've done a lot of work on, or taking a risk-based approach. So those things stood out to me because um, just as Google's a global company, the forum is a global organ, international organization. So we, you know, I think about global, how we can, how we can create that global consistency of, uh, around regulation or governance a lot. And I also loved the fact that she talked about future proofing. So not just thinking about what she's doing today, but how that will be, uh, how that work will affect the future and how she has to think about what the future might look like. Um, I think that case studies are so important. And she talked very eloquently about how they use, use case studies to educate. And that really brings me, I think, to the most important point that I take away and something that we talk about all the time in responsible use of technology, and that's education. You've got to educate everybody. Everybody has to be up to par. Everybody has to realize that this responsible AI is something that they need to know about. And you don't have to be an ethicist to understand it, but you need to know about it in order to produce good product. And I think that education aspect, she, she really brought out so well. What about you, Miriam? I can't wait to listen again and hear and think more about the insights she shared with us. Um, I was very struck that from the beginning, she said that it was someone else's research, Latanya Sweeney, who pointed out to her some of the problems of the products that she was touching. Um, and, and I'm really struck by the fact that uh, they are not in a vacuum. They are part of this world. They are part of these conversations. Um, I'm grateful that they're monitoring um, what others are advising them, how they can learn from academics and other experts. And so uh, very exciting to think that um, that they took that message as an opportunity to learn um, and that she took that as an opportunity to build this entire practice that she now uh, commits so much time and energy to. I think like you, I was struck by her talking about the future proofing of this, what they call constitution. Um, I was 
thinking about how you would word principles now that will stay applicable day to day as AI iterates, as our use for AI changes, as the products they create pivot, you know, tremendously um, and still be meaningful two years later, five years later, let alone 10 years, which in this space is many lifetimes. Uh, so really thinking through the challenges of what that looks like, let alone the implementation, which is the most challenging part um, as well. And, and how much thought she's given to, as you say, the education, the cultural changes that need to happen in order for her work to have impact. I was likewise struck by her optimism that if she does her work well, they won't need to cancel as many products down the line because this will be part of the culture and the understanding, the broader perspective of those doing this work. Um, I was struck by her optimism. I'm glad that like many of our guests at the end of the day, that while she works day in, day out on the problems of building AI, she remains optimistic about how its uses will become uh, beneficial how it can create more equality. For instance, she mentioned for small businesses and others who can really make use of this technology uh, to operate at larger scales and at greater capacities. Um, and finally, I think the fact that she returns to the human challenges underlying these, these responsible AI challenges that at the end of the day, what we're talking about is solving for these complications, these challenges, these human um, foibles that have been a part of civilization forever, that most likely always will be, and yet we have this new technology, AI, where we want to solve for it in the zeros and ones that create this technology we've become so reliant on. So I think a really important check that it is about the humans, both in how it's impacting our society, in how we're building the AI, but also in how we're thinking of this as a solution. It needs to be a human solution, not just an AI solution. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that most of our listeners it will take away many things, but one thing that stands out is, is Jen's humility, her preparedness to say, I had to learn this and we made mistakes, but we are there working every day trying to solve those mistakes. And I think that that um, is just something that you need if you lead a team in this very, very difficult area. It's so true. And also she touched on something that some of our other guests have talked on, the resilience necessary. I think people take for granted how challenging this work is because you're in the company being a perceived threat to efficiency and uh, people perceive you to be someone slowing down when really you're supporting their work. You want their work to be better, to impact and benefit more people. Um, and in you know, her approach to understanding we can't fix every problem every day um, and, and how to change her aperture so that they can remain committed in, inside this work, in doing this work and remain uh, optimistic about the outputs. Uh, which is, again, something we all can learn from in all of our work. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of good things in this podcast, but there always is, isn't there? We're just so fortunate to have such incredible guests. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you, Kay, for another great conversation. Thank you. Take care. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.